Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name's John Bleasdale, I'm a film critic and writer... And today I'm going to be talking to Glenn Frankel. Glenn was a journalist for the Washington Post for many years before turning his hand to uh, f- to writing some of the best film books of the last few years. He has written books on The Searchers, High Noon, and most recently Midnight Cowboy. We'll be discussing all of the books. If you enjoy the conversation, please remember to like and spread the word as far and wide as you can. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at DrJonty, but before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. prevailing fear that I shall uh, one of these days do an interview and then have nothing to show for it. I, uh, I know the feeling, John, it's even happened once or twice to me, not with Zoom, but in other parts of my life. So yes, make sure you're all, you're good. You started off as a journalist uh, kind of in another part of the world. Is, is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, I was a journalist for more than 30 years, 27 of them at the Washington Post. So I wrote two books during that time, but the movie book writing gig really began when the journalism gig finally ended. Was it always your passion as well? To uh, you did, uh, did you have it as a sort of hobby 
you know, watching movies and everything, or, or was it something you got into later? Oh, I watched movies. I mean, you know, I'm from a generation where movies were the seminal, landmark, all-encompassing cultural item. I mean, I guess music to an extent, but really, movies really dominated our lives in a way. Every new movie that came out that, you know, was at all interesting. I went to see when I was, I'm talking about when I'm 20, 21. I went to Columbia University in New York. And um, as I mentioned in the back of the book, I probably spent more time in movie theaters than in the classroom. There were wonderful opportunities to get an education in film. I have no formal education in film and I don't pretend to know, you know, I'm not a film studies guy. I know a lot about three movies. Well, those are, those are three very good movies, though, very big movies. Yeah, and you know, and, and there's some collateral the things I had to learn along the way, a lot of things. But essentially, I'm just a journalist. And so what I don't know, I just try to find the people who do know something and talk to them about it and do the best I can. But, you know, I felt very lucky to have stumbled into this little subgenre. It's it's not just movies, and we can talk about this, of course. It's what movies reflect about the times they're made. They're great, I think, great way of looking at the past and sort of summoning it all up. So I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm well equipped in some ways and incredibly ignorant in others. Well, I thought, I mean, I, I've approached your work a little bit back to front. I started by reading your Midnight, Midnight Cowboy book, which I think was amazing and then I immediately thought well I've got to I've got to get the others and then so I read the searchers book and I read the high noon book now is that in the opposite order or is it just mixed up or it's totally opposite well <laughs> searchers was the first one and right searchers was when I got you know when I left the Washington Post and I was lucky enough to land a gig at Stanford University teaching journalism I had time you know to do a book but I didn't want to I'd been a foreign correspondent but I didn't want to write a book I don't know about the Iraq war or Tony Blair or whatever from you know from California I needed an American book and searchers had always fascinated me and I talked about maybe doing that someday coffee table book I don't know you know and, but it seemed like the obvious thing to to come back to once I was at Stanford. I thought I could go out to Monument Valley and do a you know do a book about John Ford and John Wayne going to Monument Valley to make this amazing movie. I found out about a weekend, namely when I bought the two set DVD for the 50th anniversary, that it was the first documentary I you know dialed up on that began with John Milius saying it's loosely based on the true story of Cynthia Ann Parker. And so suddenly I was launched on a much more complicated and ambitious project, which would be to trace the damn thing from its real beginnings. But that's exactly what I was best suited to do, because, you know, if it comes to writing about history or researching, I'm good. You know, writing about John Ford, who, you know, was another matter, writing about the movie where there was very little written down. But, you know, I, I mean, I learned my way. I had a lot of help. So that's how I stumbled into the whole thing. And everything's just followed. And High Noon came second. I, you know, I, I always loved High Noon, but I didn't think it was a great movie. But then I, I was at University of Texas. We did a little film series. I talked about searchers. Somebody from Radio TV Film, who knows a lot about movies, did High Noon. And not only the, the Blacklist connection, but really, you know, made the case for High Noon as a, as a great movie. So that like fell into my lap. And then Midnight Cowboy, as we might discuss, took much longer to come across. But boy, I'm very happy I did. I think in many ways it's the best of the three and the one that was most engaging for me. These books are wonderful for me because I get to learn stuff I don't know anything about. <laughs> 
that's a really good starting point because you do sort of you bring the reader along on a on a sort of journey with you as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea anyway. And um, you know, some people know a hell of a lot more about all this stuff than I do, but I have my own distinct notion of how to make them. And having a movie is so helpful as a writer because when things begin to slow down a little, you just toggle back to the movie and, you know, everybody sits up and pays a little more attention. It's great to have movie stars in a book. <laughs> yes. That, I mean, the first Searchers book, it's almost like, uh, you know, after the introduction, it, the movie doesn't turn up again for, for another sort of 200 pages. Yes, which was a great disappointment to some of the readers. Um, <laughs> But I do begin it with John Ford It's one and, and sort of make, make a promise that we'll get back to this reader. But first, let me tell you a little bit about the Comanche Texan Wars. It's, and um, yes, that that some people thought that was great and other people just hated the idea. But, you know, I loved it. It reminded me of the I, I don't know if there's some clip on YouTube of the sort of who's that line or who's, you know, one of those black and white old quiz shows. And the person whose secret it is that the panel has to guess is that he was in the theater when Lincoln was shot. He was like, <laughs> and it, just that sort of like, what? How can that person be on television if, if he was in the theater when Lincoln got? But that connectivity is exactly what the Searchers book does. It has that, you know, frontier situation and it draws a line which goes right up to the making of the film and then the reception thereafter and right up to the present day, in fact. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the beauty of it was, I didn't know what exactly what the theme of it was. For a while, I thought, oh, I'm writing about storytellers. So everybody's a storyteller. Well, as things went along, it became clear to me what's, what should have been obvious from first. It begins with a story that becomes a legend. It becomes a sort of frontier myth, you know, that fits various snuggles very well in the American myth. And each iteration, including Searchers, and in the end, including my own damn book, is another iteration of the myth. And, you know, examined, pulled apart, held up through the, the, the you know, the, the microscope of our own time and values and needs. And every generation reinvented that little girl's story to fit whoever was telling it. And so, you know, I, I you know, I just, as I often do, I just kind of blundered into the theme and, you um, uh, it, it took a lot of work, but I was at Stanford and I had the time and, you know, it's incredible when I look back how many years it took to nail the thing down and how overly ambitious it was, but that's okay. I, I, I love doing it and I think it's a book, it's an unusual book and that people don't write books like that about movies very much. So there you go. In a way, it'd be interesting to see someone take that as a template and do it with a couple of other movies because I'm sure there are films which would uh, would be well suited to that approach. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a tough approach because you've got to be really interested in that a lot the folks who write movie books generally are interested in movies <laughs> yeah. and they didn't and a lot of them skip their you know history courses um, in, <laughs> in high school or college me i didn't take any movie courses except one with the great andrew saris rather late in the game but i took all the history courses and i majored in history so this is my own little you know a lot of people could do this and do this well, but this happens to fit my own background and sensibility and, you know, what I know and what I don't know. It works okay. It works for me. How do you feel about, because I've had a very, uh, I think a, probably a lot of people my generation would share this as well, a, a, a ambivalent relationship with John Wayne in the, you know, I remember seeing him on TV and loving him and true grit and all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, and then later in life, you know, finding out about his politics and becoming a little bit more, well, ambivalent 
if not hostile. And then, and then, sort of, as I've gone older, I've actually got back into him and really appreciate him. I read the Scott Iman biography, and I really appreciate him more. How 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 has your uh, sort of relationship with the Duke progressed? Well, I think it's a similar arc in the sense that I loved, you know, the early stuff I saw. I was too young to read much into it. Um, some of the movies like Searchers are very deep and complicated. Others are not at all. I think for all of us of a certain age, Wayne became this right-wing archetypal figure, very one-dimensional, John Birch Society supporter. And his films, after, after people like John Ford and Howard Hawks, fade away because Wayne's younger than them and his career continues. He takes over really making his own films and they become very one-dimensional and uh, and becomes a bit of a, of a parody of himself. Uh, the toupee, the, you know, the weight he, he gains over the years. Is, it, 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 he's not working with great people, with great directors anymore. He's directing himself basically. So, and it's only later when I went back and saw some of the early Wayne, and I did take a course in John Wayne at Stanford. I sat in on a graduate film course and, you know, that you see the younger Wayne and how live and how alive his performances are, and you learn more about his story. That doesn't change my, you know, the toxicity of his politics and his racial, um, you know, prejudices and all that. But at the same time, um, you see what a talented performer he was, and um, and you get to appreciate that. And Searchers, of course, is, in my mind, his greatest performance, and in his most complex movie. He's not responsible for the complexity of the movie, but he is responsible for the performance. And without his performance, without taking that iconic you know, Indian killer figure and and showing us what's underneath that and all the damage. You know, this is a guy who sets out to kill his niece because she slept with Comanches after being kidnapped. But he doesn't say, he never says, oh, I've got perfect solution for my problem. I'll just go kill my niece and everything will be fine. You can tell he's deeply troubled by all that, that he doesn't have an answer, that, you know, you, you know taking out a gun and shooting somebody ain't going to get anybody any piece out of this and it's a masterful performance and once you begin to get comfortable with that well inevitably you have to have more respect at least uh for the guy who does it and um he understood that searchers was complicated he knew what he was doing it's a brilliant performance and so just like i have to give john voigt credit for his brilliant performances despite his incredibly contemporary toxic politics you know you have to respect the actor and the role also, Ford is is such a strange mixture of like there's there's elements of sort of really down to earth, you know. I mean, I I was thinking about it as I was reading your book, and I I came up with the phrase folksy fascism because there's a sort of <laughs> there's a sort of like yeah, everybody should get on, and there's a down to earth quality and all the rest of it. But you know, Ward Bond and people like that are gonna are gonna always be there, you know, to kill people in case. Well, welcome to my country. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've noticed. I don't know how much time you've spent in the states over the years, but you know, just like the UK is a pretty complex place these days and always has been, and and this sort of irrational right wing back to the land, you know, uh, Little England, all that. You know, we've got. We've got our own version of all that and more. I remember I spent six years as the Washington Post bureau chief in the UK um, on two separate occasions. And I remember, especially with Chris Patton, one of your more um, uh, enlightened conservatives, who was, you know, Chris just making fun of, you know, the evangelical movement, things that people couldn't understand. 
in the UK. And yet, of course, every country, including the Netherlands, including all these so-called enlightened places, have their versions of this. But in the United States, it's more out there. There's no question John Ford was an enormously complex, difficult person. Even his sexuality is complex and difficult to sort through. That's that's the country we live in. It's one of those, what, what would, did Freud say? The sort of return of the repressed, that he has this sort of like clenched masculinity, which doesn't admit it's sort of homoeroticism, and yet there it is for all to see. I wish it were more repressed, but that's okay. Um, and then, of course, you have like, when when it comes to the, so I'll take them in the order of, of publication then, rather than the order I wrote, read them in. <laughs> But then you have that that sort of right wing politics bleeding into the sort of appreciation of the film these days as well. And I, I think, I mean, in terms of there, I've heard a podcast recently that, that really kind of dismissed the searchers out of hand as this is just sort of white supremacy bullshit. Um, we're not they, we're not taking that. I, I'm not comfortable with that dismissal. I think it's I think there's so much more, as you say, it's I think it's complicated and it needs to be and it needs to be seen. No, I agree with you. I, I mean. Look, it's a racist movie, and I would never defend it as not being a racist movie, for heaven's sakes. And I'm not defending John Ford's paternalistic, at best, uh, treatment of Native Americans. And in this movie, it's not very paternalistic. It's much more straight ahead. But it's a racist movie about racism. And yeah, it's a white male fantasy, too, except for the fact that it's hard not to notice that it's the women and it's their active agent, Martin, who happens to be uh, a man, but also happens to be some, you know, to have Cherokee blood. One eighth, I believe, only is what they give him. But nonetheless, in the book, incidentally, the Martin character is strictly white, has no Native American blood. But here we have ultimately, I, I read it as the triumph of the women and Martin and family over violence. The violent men are either dead at the end of the movie or they are excluded from the community, from the home. Now, you know, I, again, I don't want to defend anything here. I think in all its complexity and, you know, psychosis and, and you know, ambiguity, Searchers reflects very well the time it was made in and the time we exist in now. And it's it's jagged edges and it's, you know, bloody background and, and it's, you know, all of that I, I, is important to capture and to chew over. And every generation will have to make its own decisions about searchers. And I just would urge people to watch it and watch it more than once because I don't think there's a better or more complicated movie about America, about our frontier origins, about our ongoing racial dilemmas, about our gender gender, politics, you name it, it's all sitting in there. And like it or not, it's served up right in front of us. Whenever I think of the film, I think of two shots. Of course, the famous one of John Wayne sort of walking away and the door closing as, as he leaves. And the one where he is in the, 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 with the rescued women who, you know, they're, they're no longer white sort of uh, statement and the camera pushing in on him looking back to them. I think those, those seem to be images that just burn through the film uh, with this sort of this ambivalence this this you know I mean the look on his face is not one of it, it, it's one of defeat of utter uh, well I don't know what do you think yes I think defeat is a good word he doesn't have we've now moved to some territory that has no map for him you know up to now he knew what he was doing he knew how he was setting forth he was coming around quick to the idea that he just you know take care of Debbie when the time came namely killed her but he, he's so unsettled, he's so unmoored, 
And yet, and as the movie goes on, he becomes more unmoored, more unsettled by this, whereas Martin becomes more certain of what the mission really has to be. And that's rescuing his damn sister and getting her home again. So this kind of tension, and he comes to respect Martin. This is another part of the complexity. He thinks Martin's a callow kidded person. He makes fun of him constantly and and derides him in racist terms. By the end of the movie, he's, he's, you know, exceeding to Martin and letting him call the shots in many ways because uh, he doesn't know what to do. And so it's these complexities that really make for such a rich, you know, that help make Searchers a, a very rich, complicated movie. I should add, you know, John Ford, as he got older, became more complicated. And he still serves up in Searchers all of the iconic Western, you know, tropes, the, the savage, you know, Native Americans, um, you know, the, the man who knows Indians, the Indian killer who protects us with a gun, and but who knows Indian lore and, you know, all those things that come from James Fenimore Cooper and, and earlier manifestations. They're all in there. And yet therefore, Ford is also undermining all of these iconic figures and tropes. He's also suggesting that things are a lot more complicated and unhappy and sad and fragile than one might expect. And so, you know, I don't expect everybody to get it or even to try to get it. If someone critiques the movie as a racist thing that doesn't need to be watched anymore, well, that's their privilege. Movies movies are very personal. They're very intimate in a way. Our, our connection to them depends a lot on who we are and when we watch the movie. When I watch a movie like Searchers when I'm 12 years old, it's very different than I'm watching it in my 70s. So that's fine. I mean, uh, but but we but we miss a, a very rich experience, I think, if we just put that movie, you know, lock that movie in a closet and forget about it. It's too powerful and it's too painful to be left in a closet. I think as well, when we have an understanding of history, we see a value in historical things which which, which involve their difference from our contemporary reality as well. But these things don't fit comfortably within the framework of what we're, how we're comfortable with talking about things because they happened half a century ago or more. They're not supposed to fit comfortably. History never fits comfortably. And uh, if we think we can put everything in a neat little box, you know, and it's this, it's racist, not racist, you know, all of that. I mean, we've been going through this again, and history constantly recycles itself. And in this country where our our vision of who we are, of what it means to be an American, things we thought were settled, you know, at least after the American Civil War, turns out they're never settled, that they they need to be revisited and argued about. And sometimes guns go off, you know, guns go off for each generation. And my God, that's what we're seeing now in the United States, especially, is another another reckoning with who we are and who gets to be an American and who doesn't, who's allowed here and who isn't allowed here, what it means to be an American. You know, these questions, it turns out, are never settled. And smug people like me who thought, you know, after Britain voted, I remember the referendum that, you know, passed Brexit. It was the summer of 2016, and I was in London researching the High Noon book, and I said to friends, well, you know, nice going. And you've been criticizing America all these years, and now you know your idiot country is about to slit its own throat economically for no reason at all. I said, and at least, I mean, whatever's going on with you guys, at least we won't elect an idiot like Donald Trump president. And of course, three months later, that's exactly what we did. So don't listen to me. I don't know anything. I had the twofer. I was, I was, uh, I was convinced Brexit wouldn't happen. I was convinced Donald Trump wouldn't be elected, and I, I, I was strident in my, uh, in my 
political prognosis and uh, and how wrong I was. Yeah, well, my wife likes to remind me of things like that. So I, I've stopped making predictions, but I'm happy to talk about the past. Retrospectively, I'm, I'm, I have a better idea. I mean, and and that and going into the second book then, Talking about being really uncomfortable, one of the things that struck me, I mean, I know about HUAC and I've, I've, I know, I, I, not, not very in depth. And, and your book was probably as in depth as I'd been in, uh, up until now. And it, it, it just struck me as what a horrible and depressing time that was, just in the sense that not only because of the naming of names, the bullying, the cowardice, the, all of that thing, but even the sort of thing that, that, that was being defended, you know, membership of the communist party wasn't that great a thing either i mean the communist party was you know what it was at that point were you know proto-fascist well not proto-fascistic but they were they were totalitarian let's say and yeah it's just like there, there are no goodies at all in in that story really i mean maybe yeah a few victims definitely but very few proper unambiguous heroes well, there were some brave people, but, you know, I'm not as interested in brave people as I am in people who just have to muddle through. That's why I loved writing about Carl Foreman, the screenwriter of High Noon, uh, the associate producer of High Noon, the man who was called to testify in the middle of the film shoot. Carl wants to find a way to get out of this problem. He's been nominated for Academy Awards for Best Screenplay Writer. He's got his career is just taking off. He doesn't want to be a martyr. He, he you know, and he's squirms and tries to find a legalistic way to avoid betraying his friendship and his his deepest principles and yet at the same time cooperate with these clowns and get this off his plate and get on to his golden career but he can't do it in that sense he's like the marshal in high noon and of course he ends up identifying with him gary cooper the gary cooper character doesn't want to face four young gunmen alone on the street he tries every way to get out of it. he tries to get all his pals to help him but of course they they walk away from him. He's on his own. He'd much rather ride off with Grace Kelly somewhere, you know, his new bride, but he can't do it. And it's this sort of reluctant courage under fire. This, this, you know, the last straw, the last thing, and you can't get out of it. That's in some ways to me, a very American thing. And, and it's one of the reasons why High Noon is still worth watching. Um, and there are people like that. There are people who tried during the blacklist era. All the thing that struck me was, so obvious all these institutions that are designed to protect us in these moments failed every one of them you know the, the democratic party was no was useless um the white house you know where both president truman and later president eisenhower didn't like the committee, didn't like what it was doing. They were useless for the longest time. The courts didn't defend anyone. Even the institutions like the Jewish community, the very liberal Jewish community in Hollywood and the ACLU, they just, you know, they rolled over for the most part. Nothing was there to protect us. And in that sense, it's an interesting parallel between them and now, because we face this time institutions held up a little better in the Trump era. The Democratic Party, for example, hung in there. The media did a much better job this time around. But nonetheless, I mean, he got elected president and it was a very close call as to us plunging into um, a terrible era. And we're not out of the woods yet. Oh, no. So I would, you know, I had no idea when I started on that book that I'd be writing about something with so much contemporary resonance. And I'm very sorry that it has so much. But we go through these cycles of, you know, backlash. Here it comes after World War II and after the New Deal, you know, the most progressive uh, moments in American history, I, I would argue. And then, boom, we get dragged back into the morass. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I love the bit in the movie which which connects so much to this uh, and this idea of sort of heroism as a as a sort of compromised, dirty thing is the him riding out with Grace Kelly on the in their little buggy and they go out and he gets halfway and he actually has this line which I thought was amazing where he says, "What am I doing out here? I don't even have a gun." Yeah, and it's just like so. Him going back is is yeah. I can't run away, but it's also I, this is suicide. If these guys are going to follow me, they're going to gun me down. And uh, so there's a, this even at that point, the decision is a mixture of him. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. And I haven't got a gun. I should go back and get a gun. Yeah, that's a very good point. He's a very clear thinker. He doesn't like the results of what he's finding out. And you can look at the whole film as his journey, of course, around town looking for to find a different meaning. But the meaning becomes clear to him, especially in that church scene in the middle, that public scene where, you know, uh, having been abandoned by the state, he's now abandoned by God. And and and, the, and God's supposed followers. He's very. He sees it. And yeah, he sees. It. He's gonna. They'll be. They'll be mowed down if they're out there in open territory with no gun. He's got to have a gun. He still thinks he can get the folks to to back him up. He's in for a big surprise. And in the end, though, he has to walk out and face those four guys. He could have taken his guns, grabbed the girl, and you know, and hightailed it out, and maybe gotten away. Maybe not. Who knows? It's a western. You know, he could shoot them all from distance somewhere. <laughs> uh, but he, he, you know, but he can't do it. He can't do it. He can't explain it. He's so, you know, you have to listen to the song. It's too bad the wife couldn't hear, the bride couldn't hear the song, because that explains very well. She keeps just asking, why are you doing this? And he can't <laughs> tell her. He can't explain it. The song explains it. But I, it's it's just a very rich, and it's so beautifully put together, you know, the, the screenplay, using the clock, using all that. It's wound, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a clock itself. It's a beautifully timed mechanism. It's very artful and uh, for all kinds of reasons. But the heart of it still is this guy who, you're right, he's being pragmatic, but he, and he's coming to the obvious conclusions. But in the end, he still walks out there on the street. And, and she saves him. She saves him. And that's beautiful, too. That's that's the most romantic, one of the most romantic things I've ever seen in a movie, her shooting that guy. And she has to sort of twist her principles as well in order to do that, because, of course, she's a Quaker, so she's a pacifist. And so, yeah. she, you know, they, they have to sort of meet in the middle somehow. Exactly. She has to betray her deepest beliefs. And they're based on what she had seen in her life earlier, the gunning down of her father and her brother. So, I mean, these are two people who have only themselves to rely upon in the end. Um, and they come through for each other. That's the sort of romantic part of this movie. In real life, the four guys would have gunned him down and kicked his body into the dirt and rode off with her to God knows what would happen after that. But this being a movie, it ends in this other way. But still, Carl, you know, this movie packs a real punch because... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. He leaves this corrupt community. And, you know, uh, John Wayne wasn't totally wrong. He hated this movie. He thought it was a commie movie. It's not a commie movie. But it has a very, very dark view of bourgeois society. And it's, you know, it's cowardice when faced with a real challenge. It's so funny as well that John Wayne accepting the Oscar for Gary Cooper made that uh, sort of mealy mouthed speech about, oh, why don't I get parts like this? And it's like behind the scenes, he's trying to get them to burn the negative. (laughs) Right, right. Well, John Wayne was a great believer in hierarchy, though. And Gary Cooper was his elder and uh, someone he had admired and still admired and so he like your liege you know he, yeah. he, he he stooped down you know and went and did his job um yeah th- there's a more than a little hypocrisy in hollywood john i know this will shock you to hear that i'm sitting down i'm glad i'm sitting down when you say that <laughs> i mean cooper's such an amazing because i i've watched him in the like in the 30s and him he he does the sort of champagne movies and the the lubitsch comedies uh, and you know and he goes all the way sergeant york and all the way through to the the westerns and he seems much more you have this part in the book where you talk about um you know cooper's you know nobody gary cooper can't die so that's one thing he won't do at the end of the movie and, and he how he has this limited range but with that limited range he he does a whole sweep of genres. Yeah, he, he. I mean, he could do anything, really. He was very careful about his image and all that. And one of the things that struck me, I mean, you're right. I mean, he, he's a very talented uh, comic performer and other things. Yet it was hard not to notice in the 50s when his career is in decline and his health is declining. He's very negative about his own performances and about his career. He feels like he's betrayed something, that he, he's never been really real. It's a sad thing because he was incredibly talented and, and he really set a, set a benchmark for other actors. Tom Hanks wrote an introduction to one of the books that Cooper's daughter, a coffee table book, and talked about how, how influential Cooper's acting was for people like him it's he's a great movie actor and he's always convincing he's in a lot of terrible movies but he's always good and um and in high noon i mean it's an extraordinary performance in that it's so minimalistic and naturalistic and you know and and almost could be a silent film for all he has to say there and yet uh it's very convincing and very powerful it is a tribute to him and to the magic that movies can pull the magic wand that movies can wave over a story. I've become, I think since the lockdown, I've really sort of gone through a whole bunch of his films and, and just discovered totally different angles, probably from, from knowing him from High Noon and then and then back. But you you said right at the beginning that you sort of, you, you didn't, it, High Noon wasn't a film that you particularly liked when, uh, and then, then you sort of did a course and and look oh you saw it again and sort of saw it through a new in a new lens did you is is there through the writing of the books is there a new way that you look at the movies then is there a new was there something particular that sort of struck you 
Well, the thing about, you know, when you watch a movie, when you first see a movie, of course, you've seen it. But then, you know, a good movie deserves to be watched again. And the process of doing a book sort of requires you to watch a movie many, many times. Sure. I remember seeing Searchers with Joe McBride, uh, one of the great biographers of John Ford. And Joe, very generously with his time, you know, walked me through the movie. And I saw things I'd never seen before and ways of thinking about things. These, I think good movies, of course, always reward reviewing. Uh, Midnight Cowboy has been like that too. And again, this is partly having watched it when I was 19 and then again, maybe in my 40s and then again, and now having watched it many times. Midnight Cowboy in many ways really rewards watching over and over again, in part because the original story is so bleak, it can often blind you to what's going on in the movie, uh, other than the bleakness as winter sets in and these poor guys, you know, face are in desperate situations. Well, after you've seen the bleakness, you still know it's there, but you begin to notice all the other things, the comedy uh, in Midnight Cowboy, the beauty of the small performances of John Voight and his little playlets with the other actors. He's in every scene, but he's a, it's a two-hander almost constantly, first with Sylvia Miles, and then, you know, with John MacGyver, and et cetera, et cetera. And they're all so wonderful, and many of them are, are, are funny, so, you know, uh, sharp, nasty at times you begin to pick up it's a complex movie in a way visually complex and in ways that the, that it either high noon or searchers are so it really rewarded uh, continual viewing and watching also it's part of the job to fall in love with these films but i find in each case you know that i have i mean i used to put midnight cowboy down somewhere below godfather and the graduate and bonnie and clyde and the great new hollywood movies i I used to keep it at about number 10. Well, it's it's number one, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's more complex and has more things to say and is more successful and modern. I love those other movies. I mean, mm -hmm. the Godfather movies I could watch all day. But, you know, Midnight Cowboy really is a very rich cinematic experience. So, yeah helps to watch them again and again. I watched it when I was like 18, 19. You know, when you're discovering all those 70s movies and you're, you know, you're, yeah. you're going through the new Hollywood and I was, uh, you know, you'd read about a, a film and think, right, I've got to see this. This is one that keeps get, coming up again and again. But The Graduate, The Godfather, I've rewatched hundreds of times. I rewatched Midnight Cowboy, I think for what must be either the second or third or probably even the yeah, probably just the second time on Sunday because I'd read your book and I thought I'm going to dig dig it out and rewatch it. And I was knocked down by how 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 it stood up uh, and how how fresh it felt. It had that weird double thing of feeling at once totally of its time and yet totally fresh and new and daring. You know, that's a very good point. There's a duality to it because it it captures New York in the late '60s brilliantly in terms of attitude and the cinematography it's like a it is like a documentary and no surprise john schlesinger and his, his cinematographer adam hollander both come from documentary backgrounds they're both loved in you know italian neorealism movies of the late 40s and 50s they share that sensibility i lived in new york in those years i, I went to columbia university and and new york looked like that and smell you know you can even smell new york in that movie yet at the same time it has a very modern feel to it. And I think part of that is the wonderful acting, both the, the two leads who are extraordinary, John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, but everybody in that movie is great. I just saw it two weeks ago in Austin, Texas on a big screen. I hadn't seen it on a big screen, I don't think since, you know, 
since I first saw it. And that was a powerful experience. And it was interesting. My wife, who has never loved Midnight Cowboy and was kind of, you know, dreading having to see it many times. She was rescued in part by the pandemic, which meant we didn't go out and go around the country showing the movie and talking about the book the way we usually do. But she saw it on the big screen and she liked it much better then. You could see some of the things just stick out of you, especially the close-ups. He doesn't do, Schlesinger doesn't do a lot of close-ups, but when he does one, you're there. And, you know, especially with Hoyt and, with Voigt and Hoffman in the, in the shabby tenem, you know, squat that they're in, those close-ups are just very powerful on a big screen. So it's a, it really is a, a movie that unfolds and that, you know, always gives you something. The screenplay, you appreciate more and more the tightness of the screenplay, the brilliance of the first third of the movie, which is a combination, I think, of all these things, plus the damn song. Yes, yes. I mean, that song, everybody likes to credit Mike Nichols, and he deserves credit for having invented almost the modern soundtrack of using Simon and Garfunkel over and over again. Sound of Silence three times, I think, in the first 30 minutes of, of The Graduate. But boy, Schlesinger uses everybody's talking in more effectively in a way. It really is the heart of what he's trying to do because it's the heart of the character. You know, everything everything in that movie in the end is from jo John Voice, from Joe Buck's point of view. Right. And that song just beautifully sums it up. And such it's, it, and also it's just such a beautiful song, uh, the way it's done. So, you know, yeah, it's the full package as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And John Voight's performance, as you say, you know, he's become something of a caricature in recent years in terms of his, certainly his public persona. I, you know, I, be, I believe he's still still a great actor, but his his Joe book is such, I mean, the way he hang, holds onto that transistor radio and he's constantly playing with it. And at first you think that's a bit sort of hokey and I'm not sure what he's doing with that and what's the idea. And then you realize that he, this guy is like a, a, a traumatized and he's, it's his, it's his security blanket. It's his, you know, way of sort of putting something between him and the world it's it's just amazing and that's a very good point that's a very good point it really is the thing he clings to and it's a very sad moment when and, and symbolic moment when he finally lets go of it for five dollars you know you're too young to remember when transistor radios were like the coolest thing in the world <laughs> i'm not that young unfortunately <laughs> well maybe and maybe you had one under your pillow every night, hiding from your parents, listening to, you know, uh, rock and roll at 11 on weekends and midnight, you know, with that damn little transistor radio that didn't work so well. And that stupid little, you know, you had an earphone that came with it that never worked properly. But occasionally the station would go out and you'd have to redial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a mess. But those things were, yeah, he, he he's a... Partly a case of arrested development. He's trapped in an adolescence, if you will. He's a man trapped in a, in a kid's sensibility. And the transistor radio is really crucial to that. You're absolutely right. Mm, yeah. And then and Hoffman as well, coming off The Graduate. I mean, they, they'd they already cast him before The Graduate hit big, of course. But what a decision to do that as, as a sort of his sort of follow-up movie and Mike Nichols being furious at him because it was <laughs> like, you know, I made you a star and you're going to play this sort of Beckett character. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, Hoffman is, um, you know, Hoffman's such a fascinating figure because, as you point out, he comes off The Graduate and he's not just suddenly a movie star, which he never expected to be and claims he didn't really want to be. But he's a movie star in Mike Nichols's movie where Nichols is shaping his performance and making him do things that he's not comfortable with. And then he's also a counterculture icon immediately because The Graduate in the end is a is a generation gap movie. And we all watched it and said, yeah, we hate our parents too, because we did. Um, that, that came with the territory. Um, hopefully you grow out of it. Some people never did. So Hoffman is suddenly this big deal. And for him to get in this kind of movie, really, and for he didn't, you know, it affirmed for us that Hoffman was very special, that he wasn't, you know, just the average guy looking for a break, that he had he had a meaning to his life. And the meaning of his life was to be a great actor and that not a great movie star. Now, was he conflicted about that? Yes, of course, because he wanted the money and he wanted the success. But at the same time, he wanted to be true to his identity, to his values. And so you watch Hoffman wrestle with this and he makes this movie. And I think one of the reasons this movie did so well, yes, he's great in it. And it's one of the reasons it's a great movie. But one of the reasons the movie made a lot of money was because Hoffman was in it. I mean, I went to see the movie in part because there was Dustin Hoffman and, oh, this looked really interesting. And, and it affirmed our belief in Dustin Hoffman and it made him an even bigger movie star. Yeah, he wasn't just going to go and do a sort of graduate version to you know not, not necessarily a sequel but but just that character in some other situation you know? yeah i don't know if he's kidding me or not but he said they offered him the graduate goes out west at one point you know <laughs> that kind of thing i mean you know i think he was making that up a little but uh yeah everybody wanted to do the damn the same damn movie again of course there's no way you can make another version of the graduate it's it's sui generous to say the least Hoffman had a great career in part because he was willing to do the things that he believed in and, and not anything else. Yeah, I mean, well, one after the other, you could you could argue that you know, the graduate is, as you say, sweet generous. And then and then Midnight Cowboy. It's not like there's another Midnight Cowboy that comes along in a few <laughs> years. Or I mean, it's kind of it's, it's hard to even think of today there being similar, you know, uh, films about sort of male friendship which which is so complex and so complicated in terms of homophobia homoeroticism and, and, and you know life of a male prostitute yeah no it is it is very much its own movie it's very much John Schlesinger's movie mm. his take on it one of the things that's so extraordinary about the story of course is we sympathize with Joe Buck we we want him you know we laugh at him but we're you know we ache for him also and then he goes out and he almost kills or maybe does kill you know his, his male his pathetic male customer near the end of the movie and that was in the book and John insists, Schlesinger insisted on keeping it in the screenplay Waldo Saul agreed with him I mean it was a tough call but it's one of the things that I think this part of what makes it a great movie is, is that it's it's you know it doesn't compromise Schlesinger wanted to make a movie that people would go see and you know enjoy and spend money on and all that but he also wanted to make the damn movie that he wanted to make and be true to his vision of what it had to be and you see it there and Voight does it I mean Voight is it's still Joe Buck we still sympathize with him but there he is beating up this poor schnook so nothing's easy for you in the you know in midnight cowboy nothing's handed to you and said oh feel good about this yeah and and i mean talk, what you said earlier about the waldo salt uh, screenplay as well because right at the very beginning dustin hoffman refers to him as killer and then you have that scene at the end and and 
there's another little moment in the screenplay that I loved, which is uh, John Voight gets Rizzo's name correct. And, and at that point, you just know, oh, God, he's dead, isn't he? He's dead. There's no way he got, he, you know, he got that. That's like, the, the, you know, that's the Chekhovian moment of like, here comes tragedy, you know? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, you mentioned earlier that the first hour of the movie is a, this series of sort of playlets that John Voight does with these in di- these different situations and what have you. When you get to the sort of cold, well, I'm not you wouldn't even call it a cold water flat. The, the it's almost like that the film sort of becomes like a Beckett play or a, or, or, or something a really sort of down 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 market pinter. You know, it's. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, there. That's you know, having been out in big New York with all these predators. Now we've worked our way into sort of subterranean New York with well, one predator. It turns out not to be such a predator. So they're they're on their own now, but they're still up against the elements because it's a squat. Uh, you know, right. it's, it's the the water. Uh, surprisingly, there is running water. I'm not sure how that worked. Uh, there was no electricity, and things get desperate and it's like once you get to the bottom there's still more bottom to go and they finally i mean they have to get out i mean they can't stay there for one thing you know the the demolition guys are catching up to them slowly and going to knock this place down but for another it's getting colder and nastier so you're right it's it's very uh you know subterranean and then it gets more subterranean and they're desperate men. There's so much serendipity making these movies, especially, you know, retrospectively, you look back and you think, oh, well, it couldn't be any other way. But, you know, the, the, one of the things that struck me in the book as well was the idea that uh, for the party scene, Andy Warhol was supposed to be going. Uh, and, you know, there was a, and I think that would have, I don't think that would have worked. I, I, I'm not saying I'm glad Andy Warhol got shot and wasn't able to go, because <laughs> that would be, that would be, you know, too much of a sacrifice to the movie gods. But uh, it would have, I think there would have been an element of imbalance to, to them sort of meeting someone so recognizable or having him on the screen. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, in the end, Warhol wasn't willing to do it because he couldn't control it. And I think right. one of the things he might have recognized is that he would have been cut to like five seconds. They would have just shown his face just to ground us a little more. I I keep coming and going about the party scene. On some level, I don't think it really works very well, but it does open up the movie in terms of what New York was like in that era and that you could be in a situation with these crazy lunatic, you know, superstars and homeless people being in, at the same party. New York, you know, New York, the, the cultural scene was kind of wide open and weird and dangerous and all that. It, it, it moves the plot along in a number of different ways. So, you know, I'm coming, I'm coming around to it, but boy, it took them five or six days to film it and they use about seven minutes altogether. And a lot of people, you know, it's just hard to say whether it really works or not, but it, it had to be there. I mean, they, they, they had to make those moves and the energy that went into putting this together, getting all these people dressed, getting all these superstars and, you know, Warhol second rate recruits down there and filming them day after day and allowing them to smoke dope and screw in the hallways and all that. What an enterprise. I mean, um, that sums up the time in a way that the, the effort to make the scene yes. is more about the 60s than the scene itself. There's a real sense as well that they're, there's a new era coming in and in some ways maybe Joe and, and Rizzo are just not, they're in the wrong time, you know, 
you, you get a feeling that Rizzo would have been, you know, he, he would have been with the Beats or something in the fifties rather than rather than the late sixties. Yeah, he, a conniver like him could could have could have got away easier. Yeah, maybe so. And it's interesting because the novel, of course, by James Leo Hurley was uh, set in the early 60s and uh, published in 65. And the, the party there is more of a beatnik style party, a couple of hip guys dancing together and bongo drums and things like that. So I think you see a little bit of that uh, disconnect between that era and the late 60s when suddenly all the borders are gone and, and you know and everybody's going crazy in a whole new both exciting and scary way i love the way as well in all of the books there's this sort of afterlife to the to the movie and to the you know there's, there's a because because each of these movies has such such important sort of endings they're so you know you have the searchers with the closing door you and and you natalie wood what what happens to her and then when you read about the legend and you find out what actually happened to the woman it kind of puts on an, another layer of tragedy to the end of the uh of the movie and the same thing with sort of midnight cowboy and even the author's life in the 60s where he sort of becomes a little bit of a i don't know kind of tourist in the in the hippie area you know that he's sort of going around to different communities and just hanging out with people um using the money he got from midnight cowboy yeah jim hurley was a complicated uh, interesting figure i mean one of the things i set out to do was um and i've done it in some of the other books as well is find people who we don't know much about but who were so important to these stories and jim i was hoping jim would show me all around New York in the 50s and 60s. And he doesn't, he didn't leave any journals or anything to do that. But he himself, you know, wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be a writer, he, he a playwright, an actor, lives this life and tries to get through it. Complicated, unhappy guy in some ways, but very charming. And and he he the hippie movement sets him off, gets him very excited. This notion of love, and you know he he's ready for that. He he has his ups and downs. He's suffering. He self diagnoses himself as manic depressive, and so his life is a constant you know roller coaster. And the hippies really appealed to him on some naive level, but also his deepest need for some kind of fulfillment in life. And writing gets to be so hard for him that that no longer provides it for him. And for a while, the hippie movement does. Um, but Jim always has to leave. He can't stay anywhere. He gets to New York. He's very excited by it. Eventually, he can't handle it anymore. He moves to Key West, loves it for a while. Then it becomes too much. Ends up in Hollywood where he's a little older and a little quieter. And that's where he lives his life until he dies. He, he contracts AIDS in the late early 90s and, and, and commits suicide in 93. It's something he'd always been rehearsing in a funny way in his life, mm -hmm. his exit from it. And he finally takes it. I thought he was a very sad figure very complicated person. I'm not, I can't pretend I really got to the heart of him, but I loved tracking him down and I loved the, the, the many places he went. And this story, you know, which really is the, the only thing we'll ever, if we remember James Leo Hurley, it'll be for Midnight Cowboy. And, um, and it's a very good book and it really does capture in its complexity, especially of these characters, you know, a, a humanity that that it was at the heart of Hurley's life. Yeah, I think all the books have this almost as a theme of, the, of bringing out like where stories come from and where they go. And they have a much longer life than just the, the 90 minutes or the two hours that you see on the screen. It'll be interesting to see what happens to Joe Buck after, you know, he gets off the bus. We don't mm. know. He's had some redemption here and there and some recognition that he needs to be a vulnerable, normal human being if he's ever going to connect with other people. 
but he's but he's almost just killed a man or you know and his his partner the person who is going to help him guide him in this has just died on the bus and he looks like he has no idea what's coming next and and we don't know he could get off at the bus station and buy a ticket back to new york or he could settle down in florida where he might be a normal guy or he might become a real estate broker i mean we don't you know nothing's clear and uh, somebody said, one of my people who've written into me suggested, wow, what about a sequel about what happens to Joe Buck? And I had to point out to him that I actually don't write novels. <laughs> uh, but also, I don't know what that novel would, you know, what we would do with Joe. So it's a very ambiguous and I think very appropriate end to that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a hint in him sort of throwing his clothes and his cowboy boots away that, that, that some sort of transformation has taken place. But yeah, it's it's totally open what that transformation will be into. And whether he can survive the transition mm -hmm. to reality, if you will. He's basically saying, OK, the masquerade's over. I'm not a cowboy. I know that. I'm not a hustler. I know that. But what are you, Joe? You know, yeah, what yeah. are you, are you going to date that nice young girl who served you coffee? Are you going to settle down and, you know, get a, a, you know, and get a job and, you know, form a bowling league? I, I mean, what are you, who are you and how are you going to survive all the things you've been through? Um, we don't know. That rhymes a little bit with, I, I always loved, uh, the, the, I love the, I think you, you quoted in the book, John Wayne's uh, take on the ending of The Searchers, where he says, I don't believe he sort of has to go, I think he just goes to the next town, has a few drinks and comes back. <laughs> he doesn't, why does he have to, it, a door closes doesn't mean he, he never can go back inside the house. <laughs> yeah, well, John wasn't that big on... Uh... <laughs> and cinematic symbolism um but i mean then again he then he goes out and makes you know the, the man who shot liberty valence which is the same theme mm -hmm. he plays a character who also can't step into the modern world who helps create the conditions for the modern for modern civilization and i put civilization in quotes but he can't be part of it the man of violence he's a man of simple ideas you know, and he can't be thrust in this more complex world and he, he doesn't survive. So you can look at the, he should look forward and watch the man who shot Liberty Valance to know what his fate really is. Listen, Glenn, I've got one last question for you. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. But I always have to ask everybody for a film book recommendation. Uh, so what's your film book recommendation? That's a tough one for me because I've really been immersed in so many and I love so many of them, but my personal favorite has to be, I would say, pictures in a revolution, uh, at a revolution, excuse me, the movies and the birth of the new Hollywood by Mark Harris. It's about 1967. And Mark takes the five Academy Award nominees for best picture that year, which range all the way from Dr. Doolittle on the old fashioned studio, you know, the lumbering mammoth all the way to the graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. And he, he dissects each one of them, uses the making of the movie. You know, I do one movie, Mark did five. He writes beautifully. He gets the context. He's, he's just so knowledgeable. He's my model. He's like 15 years younger than me. And, you know, but he's been doing this all his life. He worked at Entertainment Weekly. It's a beautifully done book. And it tells you so much about that pivotal era, you know, when the studio system is undergoing massive change and that sort of brief golden moment when American movies, you know, um, set out and did some things. 
So that's that's the one I keep leaning back and wishing I could have done half as well as Mark. Well, I I, I would respectfully disagree in the sense that I think that, that it's very comparable. It's an excellent, excellent, excellent book, uh, Pictures from the Revolution. And I, it sits on my shelf alongside uh, your books now. <laughs> um, and we had Mark on the podcast a couple of months ago, and uh, he was talking about Mike Nichols, but we also talked about uh, Pictures from the Revolution. So that's a brilliant recommended book. Thank Thank you so much glenn for for your time and thank you so much for talking to me and and you know congratulations on these wonderful books it's so great to have a really fresh way of looking at films you know i'm, I'm a i love my history so it's good to see them in their context well john this was fun i mean you know you know a lot more about movies than i do and um it was really fun to go over these again the three of them i mean that's a rare treat for me too <laughs> So that was my conversation with Glenn. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I found it's a fascinating mind and a, a brilliant writer. His recommended book was Mark Harris's uh, Pictures from uh, the Revolution, um, also called Scenes from the Revolution, uh, the UK edition. If you uh, haven't read it already, I, I add my voice to Glenn's unnecessarily. You can also listen to Mark talk about that in an earlier podcast, in an earlier episode on Writers on Film. Uh, just go to our go to the webpage and download. All that remains for me to do is to thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard, who helps out with the art. And uh, until the next conversation, please take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>